Welcome to Prison Pipeline, produced at the studios of KBOO Portland. I'm Karen James. My guest is Tara Candela, a registered nurse and attorney now working in psychiatric and mental health nursing. Tara has her own practice in Beaverton, Oregon, called Presence of Mind, where she specializes in bipolar disorder, anxiety, and depression. After experiencing her own mental health struggles, which led to her own involvement with the criminal justice system, she now works to influence positive change. Welcome, Tara. Thank you. Tara, start with your educational background. It's quite extensive. I have a number of degrees. I got my GED, actually, in about a year before I was supposed to graduate high school because my, my dad died, and that was a pretty tragic circumstance for me. And then I went to junior college. I got a regular AA, and I got my associate's degree in nursing, and that was in 2004. After that, I got my BSN, which is a Bachelor's of Science degree in nursing. After that, I went to law school because I decided, you know, working in healthcare, I was like, oh my gosh, this is really terrible. Things need to be changed. I wanted to do policy work. So I decided to go into law and completed law school in 2010. This was in Florida. I moved from Florida to the DC area thinking I wanted to do policy work and that wasn't so easy to happen. So I ended up teaching nursing school, including teaching some psychiatric nursing. And I did that for about, I want to say about three years while I was also uh, doing some law type stuff, but nothing really full time. And then I decided I did want to practice law and I opened up my own practice for a couple of years. Oh, also during that time, I got my master's of science in nursing with a focus on healthcare policy. And that was kind of something I did because it was offered by the school that I taught at. So it was just part of one of the benefits. You could get an additional degree while you were working there. So I did that, practiced law for a bit. And then I went back into nursing because I had my own mental health crisis in fall of 2015. And my experience in that and um, how awful it was is really what led me to go back into nursing and say, I really want to do psychiatric nursing. So it took me some time to kind of recover from that incident. It happened in fall of 2015. And I started uh, my first psychiatric nursing job in the summer of 2017. And then that was in the DC area. I moved out here in 2018 to the Portland area and continued to work in adult um, inpatient psychiatry. I went back to school and got my psychiatric nurse practitioner uh, postmaster certification. And then I started working as a psychiatric nurse practitioner in summer of 2021. Uh, graduated in December of 2020, but we have this thing called credentialing before you can actually start to work um, if you work and take insurance. So that took quite some time. So that brings me up to where I am now. And in this role, I have worked in outpatient private practice. I did do some inpatient acute care, and I also work in a county jail. And right now I am just doing my own outpatient private practice and trying to expand that slowly and methodically so that uh, things can go a bit smoothly because there's a lot of complexity in it. So quite an extensive educational background, Tara. So you said you did have your own struggles with mental health. You said you did have struggles in 2015, but you did have a diagnosis prior to that. Can you talk about your diagnosis? Yeah, I actually, I did have a diagnosis prior to that, but it wasn't the one that I ended up with. I mainly started seeking mental health care due to severe anxiety and panic disorder. I would have panic attacks and things like that and a lot of relational anxiety. So I was in therapy. Um, I also had a psychiatrist and I was on some medication. But then in 2015, I had a psychotic break that seemingly came on pretty suddenly. And I was diagnosed with bipolar one, 
and that led to involuntary uh, hospitalization and criminal charges because during the context of that experience, I attacked my partner, who happens to be my husband now. So I'm very thankful for him. So can you talk about that experience? What happened? Yeah, so I think that it's really hard to go back and think about what happened leading up to it. But I was definitely under a lot of stress. And I think that stress can be a breaking point for people who are predisposed to these things happening. So I was under a massive amount of stress. I was working as an attorney and I had someone that I was working with, but we were doing um, a trial and I was actually first chairing a trial for the very first time. I was in court like when this whole process started. And I think there was situations leading up to it and behaviors leading up to it that maybe some people were noticing. And uh, the trial was a three-day trial. And I'm somewhat thankful that I didn't really start to decompensate or escalate or however you want to describe it until the third day and the end of it. But from that moment, it was just rapid escalation into severe paranoia and psychosis. And everything just happened so lightning fast. It's almost unbelievable that it can happen that quickly. But leading up to it, people noticed that maybe I was more irritable and I wasn't sleeping as much and all this kind of stuff that you would see with what we call bipolar mania. And then the break happened. So, I mean, that's what was going on. Uh, prior to that, I, I, I feel like I was doing okay. I was pretty excited about things and my law practice seemed to be going well. But there was probably an underlying severity of stress going on because who wouldn't be stressed out doing a, a trial by themselves practically when they hadn't really done one before other than law school. Did anyone intervene or talk to you about your escalating behaviors at that time? Yes, actually. And I think this goes to knowledge and why we need to have education about mental illness, because my, oh, I guess I'll refer to him as my husband. We weren't married at the time, but he kept thinking, I just needed to rest. Like I just needed to be able to go to sleep or something. But once you're past that point, you cannot do that. I mean, that's literally what you're in. And he also had no knowledge of bipolar disorder to notice any behavioral changes leading up to the incident. So during the actual crisis time, I actually engaged with multiple people, some of whom clearly must have known that I should have gone to the hospital or something like that, but the situation wasn't presented to me that way. They're like, well, you know, some of what you're saying is not really making a lot of sense. And I think, you know, you just need to relax and Um, you need to calm down. And that wasn't helping because I was swimming so much with paranoia and the fear that was going on in my head. But yes, people were definitely noticing at that point, but thinking, oh, she just needs to rest. And I'll share this other component too. I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome when I was like 21. And I don't talk about this often because I've lived with it for so long, but I am chronically exhausted all of the time. And I have like a baseline and I just, I just deal with it. But um, during this episode, I was running around the hospital unit saying, I'm cured. I'm cured. I don't feel tired at all anymore, which speaks to the neurobiology component of it to me. So, but yeah, leading up to it, I think there were signs. And now that I do this work, part of doing the work was also understanding my own experience. I feel a little bit better prepared to watch for those signs so that we can intervene before I cross the line of being able to listen to anybody that things are starting to go wrong, if that makes sense. You're aware enough to know the signs? I would like to think so, but then I also know like, okay, well, I have this propensity because one of the things that I don't know is how much insight you maintain once you cross that line 
but experience from working with people who have bipolar disorder tells me you don't really retain any of it when you're in that crisis level. And then when you come out of it, you can talk about your experience and stuff like that. But then when you go back into it, you kind of lose that, that insight again. So the things that I watch out for is making sure my stress level stays lower, making sure I'm sleeping. So if I go through a period where I can't sleep for some number of days, I make sure that I handle that because sleep is really one of the most restorative things. So making sure that you're sleeping. So looking for signs like that. And he looks for, is my irritability changing? Is there anything unusual? And I talk about that too. Like even um, when I worked in the hospital, I would let people know about my experience. And I said, you know, if you ever notice anything unusual, I want you to talk to me about it. That's very unusual that you're so open about it. You know, there's such stigma around it that it's very difficult for people to voice a concern like that. Please watch out for me. Yeah, it, it took a while. But then once I started talking openly, it was such a relief. And then other people start talking openly. So I just now I talk about it like a knee surgery. You know, like nobody would have a problem saying, oh, well, I had this knee surgery and blah, blah, blah. And this is how I recovered. With mental health, there's really a lot of awkwardness around it. And people don't understand it. And they don't know what to say. People don't know what to say. And I think this is, as you say, where the education comes in. Can you talk about your experience, your psychotic break in 2015? Yeah. So, um, so it started out because I was in the trial. I started having delusions, which are fixed false beliefs about things. And it turned into this perception that there was some kind of conspiracy going on with the bar and the judge and the jurors and jury tampering. And it just lit up in my head that this thing was happening. And then it turned into somehow there was a conspiracy to shut me down or try to kill me. And it started involving all of these different people in my life, including my in-laws who happen to live in St. Louis, Missouri, um, to show you how convoluted these ideas can get in your head. And then um, some of it was quite embarrassing because I was on LinkedIn professionally and I was on Facebook and I um, ended up being able to post all of these things and calling for help publicly on these social media platforms. And some people that I was professionally involved with, of course, saw them, one being a very affluent attorney who's well-known across the country, actually. And we were friends, you know, on LinkedIn before that because he was part of my conspiracy. So I did notice after it ended that we were no longer friends on LinkedIn. And because <laughs> I thought he was trying to kill me. I, I can laugh about it now, but um, there's a lot of trauma that comes from it. And I Something I've thought about now, like what PTSD comes from psychotic break, it even transpired into me thinking that my now husband was going to kill me and I ended up attacking him and choking him like pretty severely. I scratched his face up. I called 911 uh, before this happened and I was saying, send everyone, send everyone. And they're like, what's going on? And I'm like, they're trying to kill me. They were like, does anybody have a gun? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Just send everyone. And then after we hung up the phone is when I attacked him. And very fortunately, he was able to get away from me. After he left our apartment, I grabbed two butcher knives out of the kitchen and I went and I locked myself in my bedroom closet. The fire department came, the police department came. They had to break down the door with a battering ram to get into my apartment and to come get me out of the closet. And when I saw the police, I didn't believe they were the police. I didn't have my glasses on, so I couldn't see real well. And I was cowered down in the closet with my laptop, which is where I was sending all these messages out from during this episode with my dog. 
fortunately nothing happened to me. And that is something that I think about because I was in there with two butcher knives, like, and these were the cops, like something could have happened to me. I could have been shot, you know, but I was able to like slowly come out of the closet. And then I just escalated. They had to put me in handcuffs and put me on a stretcher. And I was all bruised by the time I got to the hospital. And even at the hospital, I thought I was being poisoned. I was throwing water on people. I thought they were poisoning me with like high dose potassium in a water cup. And then when they were, they were taking my blood, I thought they were injecting me with stuff. And you can also have types of hallucinations where you start to feel dizzy and stuff. Like you think you're smelling fumes, you'll actually have a reaction to it. Like you get really dizzy and disoriented to confirm that you are in fact being poisoned. Um, so all of this stuff was swimming around and I waited in the ER, got taken to the psych hospital. And this is an interesting part of the story too. It's almost like it's made up. I used to teach at that psych hospital on that psych unit as a clinical nursing instructor. And then they took me there as a patient. I had also just trained to do uh, civil commitment hearings, representing patients in civil commitment hearings. And I was supposed to be representing people on that unit on the Friday of the week that I got committed. So I was running around the hospital unit, manic and psychotic and telling everyone that I was a nurse and I used to work there and I was a lawyer and I was supposed to be there representing people and nobody believed me until my husband showed up and goes, no, 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 she's actually telling the truth. And um, my hospitalization was a miserable experience. Nobody would listen to you. Like if you had valid concerns, trying to get something to drink was like a power struggle. All of this awfulness was from it. And I was involuntarily like medicated. And he recently told me I might've broken somebody's finger. I definitely kicked somebody in the face because they were carrying me through the air. So all kinds of stuff happened and lots of trauma from it. Civil commitment in Virginia is very different than it is here. So I was in for 10 days, got out too early, did a bunch of very bad decision-making that cost me a lot of money. This is at the point the bar got involved and I had to go through psychological evaluations to keep my bar license. I had to hire an attorney. After I was out of the hospital a few days is when the police showed up at my door and arrested me and um, handcuffed me, put me in the back of a police car and took me down to the police station. I signed some stuff and they let me go. You were arrested. Why? I ended up being charged for domestic violence because of what happened to my husband, like choking him um, in the context of my psychotic experience. And Nobody disagreed that I was psychotic, but they refused to drop the charges, despite my attorney trying. Like, they absolutely refused to drop the charges. Um, this was in Alexandria, Virginia, that this happened. That was one of the most challenging things for me. And how did your then-boyfriend, now-husband fit into that? Did he press the charges? There's a common misbelief. Victims can give their opinions, but the pressing of charges is ultimately up to a prosecutor. So. In fact, he was not even wanting to testify and they weren't even going to call him, but they felt they had so much evidence, which they did. It, it didn't even matter. And there is a chance I would have been able to proceed on like a, a self-defense kind of platforming thing based upon my belief. But my options were to do that, to go ahead and do like a plea or to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. And then that would have required me to be sent to the state hospital, even though I was completely no longer psychotic or in need of being at a hospital level of care. So that was not an option. Plus, I learned that that can have uh, worse professional consequences than the criminal charges, just as they stood. 
for me since I had um, a couple of professional licenses. I was fortunate that I was able to plead not guilty because some pleas, I think they make you plead guilty and I'm not a criminal law attorney, but um, on licensure applications and things that I have to answer, uh, sometimes they'll ask, have you ever pled guilty, blah, blah, blah. And I can still say no. By virtue of that, it's just a way of you know answering questions, but the consequences were I had to do two years of probation which eventually got knocked down to one and then my charges were dismissed. But the record always stays there and Virginia does not have expungement. Are you still continuing with any behavioral type of uh, treatment? Yes. Um, I don't currently take medication. I was actually trying to take lithium, which is a gold standard for bipolar disorder. And I can't because I have a genetic condition that prevents this. I just learned about this over the past year. So I'm kind of sorting things out to figure how I can help some of my levels of dysfunction, uh, including lifestyle changes. But I have a therapist and I have um, a psychiatrist. But you also have a successful practice. It's growing. It's growing. Wonderful. Yes. It's it's growing. And my hope is to work with people who have more severe illness. So I'm trying to figure out how to make that happen because I also need more support in my practice. So it's just, it's going to take time. So I'm trying to be patient. Terry, you also have some experience working in the Multnomah County Detention Center as a nurse practitioner. So do you have any thoughts about the jail experience for people, especially people suffering with mental illness? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. (laughs) So the whole model needs to be changed. And I I think it's a funding issue because we can't get Medicaid coverage in, in jails due to, you know, legal exclusions. So Where I worked, people were able to get medication management if needed. There's a lot of uh, disorganization, I think, in any organizational environment. So it was kind of hard, even in my role, to figure out exactly what was going on most of the time and what people's roles were, aside from my own. Like I evaluated people. I did evaluation, diagnosis, medication management. And um, I always tend to incorporate some type of brief psychotherapy type stuff and talk to people about their experiences and things like that. But um, they need peer support and psychotherapeutic interventions, not just medications, because you're dealing with like so much trauma, like so much trauma. And there's a lack of psychoeducation. People don't understand their emotions, what they're experiencing. And it's really like really just trying to put band-aids on if you're just doing like medication management and they're not even band-aids that work. So there's distinctions between people who have like psychotic disorders and people who are in there and they're having like really bad anxiety and feeling really depressed and they can't sleep and all this kind of stuff. And a lot of that is like, well, how should that be addressed? And I countered a lot of people who really did want someone to talk to, someone to listen someone to talk to them, help around these things and understanding. And, you know, when someone's like, oh gosh, I feel really anxious and they're facing a bunch of charges and they're sleeping in a very uncomfortable place and, you know, their freedom is, you know, completely limited and all this kind of stuff. Like, how are you not anxious? And why would you be able to sleep? You know, Prozac is not going to, it's not going to fix that. So what were the outcomes? Did you think some people actually got help going through the jail experience? As you said, it was further traumatizing. What were some of the outcomes and what is needed? Well, first of all, stop putting people in our jails and prisons who are suffering with these disorders. Well, I mean, to say, you know, stop putting people with the disorders in jails and prisons. I feel like all jails and prisons need to be more like hospitals. 
in like more of a treatment. I don't even like the word treatment because it's like something you do to somebody, a care environment. It needs to be like a different type of environment across the board, first of all. But we did have some people benefit because they might be able to come in, get on medication. Whereas when they first came in, you couldn't even talk to them. And then later on being able to have a conversation with someone after they were stabilized and be like, Hey, well, this is, this is what's happened. You know, this is where you're at right now. Cause I would often see people and then be like, Oh gosh, well, can I go back to the hospital? And like, unfortunately you can't go back to the hospital. Like this is the situation that happens. So like the next time you're at the hospital, if you can even hold on to this, even this thought that maybe if someone's telling you to stay there, maybe you want to do that, you know, like, I don't know what difference these little moments might make, but trying to connect with people in their moments of lucidity is important, really, really important. So yeah, some people were able to clear up and then some people did get resources. They might get set up with outside appointments and stuff like that. And there's a lot of medical care that does go on there, outside appointments. Uh, Sometimes people get to go to the dentist and they haven't done that in who knows how long. When did you work at the uh, detention center? Early summer of 22 to, yeah, sometime in 23. And they are connecting people with services after leaving the jail. To the best of their ability. I don't, and again, this is where I talk about like disconnect with things because I might've had someone in front of me and I really didn't have like a good grasp on what their transition plan was. So I think coordination of care between all providers and the transition team is like hugely important. And they would have meetings and stuff like that, but it still was really difficult for me to figure out what was going on. But that is also complicated by the fact that I was not a full-time provider. So, you know, I think that if I had an opportunity to engage more, then maybe it would have been different and I could have sunk in a little bit deeper. But I, I did see that there was a lot of like disconnect between things that could be better. And then what people want is there actually is a pretty big interest in like psychotherapy groups and stuff like that and working on things and talking to people and connecting with people. So bringing in stuff like that, there's a lot of evidence-based practice out there that can probably be looked into. And of course, it's going to be different per environment. So for jails, you have to look at jail evidence-based practice. And for prisons, you have to look at prison-based practice because jail is short-term theoretically, right? So yeah, there's good and definitely bad. We all know that there's a staffing issue. I do not know how to solve that. Like I don't have any, I don't have any good ideas. It's not just the money, but I think most what you see is people don't feel valued in the work that they do. And there's often like disconnect between administration and frontline workers. And that's uh, whether you're in a hospital or no matter where you are, there's always this huge disconnect between the people in the meetings and the people doing the work. Tara, do you want to give your website so people know how to contact you or contact information? And also talk a little bit about your, you have a particular philosophy after uh, going through your own mental health struggles, you kind of changed how you feel about involuntary treatment. So first of all, give your contact information and let's talk about uh, your treatment philosophy. Okay. Well, contact information, my website, pretty basic website. It's presence of mind, PNW, like pacificnorthwest.com. So presence of mind, PNW, like pacificnorthwest.com. Yeah. Treatment philosophy. So I had had some thought about it before I ever had my break. And I used to have this idea that if people were mentally ill, they should be free to be so and not necessarily be treated against their will and things like that. And then after my own experience, I realized it wasn't me. Like it wasn't me when I was sick. 
So my decision has changed now. Personally, if that ever happens to me again, I would like to be involuntarily committed again. Um, I would like the underlying treatments to change and the care, again, the word treatment, but um, I would like the care to change and to be respected and to be treated with dignity and to have autonomy to the largest extent possible and always striving towards that because you can't have it at first necessarily. But yeah, because it can be dangerous. I have worked with people who have like my story all the time, like my story happening to them all the time. And I know where that mind space is. The other thing, you know, that's missing is, well, when people come out of that, like, how do you deal with the trauma from it? How do you talk about it? How do you face it? How do you support them when somebody wakes from this, this nightmare? So yeah, my treatment philosophy did change. I don't know how far I would take it. I am reading it's a slow read because she gives me a lot to think about, but Ellen Sachs' uh, book, Refusal of Care, she proposes a bunch of different policy changes to meet the needs of those with severe and persistent mental illness. Ellen Sachs, some of you may know and some of you may not know, is a scholar. I think she's a lawyer. She's also a psychoanalyst, and uh, she has lived experience of schizophrenia and um, has a lot of good insight into ways of doing things a little bit differently. So I'm interested in continuing to read that and kind of formulate some ideas on the topic because I think, I can't even say most, but at least half, uh, and this is what she says too, like at least half of people want to be involuntarily treated if this happens to them. And maybe it's even a higher number of people who have family members would want their family member treated. So I think we need to look at that and, you know, figure this out because we have to choose between, do you want someone to be treated at a jail, you know? Or do you want someone to have care in a hospital, you know, jail versus hospital, because those really are the two choices for a certain portion of the population. And it's not going to be this thing that other people are trying to put together. Like community-based treatment is great, but sometimes people still need to be in the hospital. A lot of people are uh, against involuntary treatment and feel as you did prior to your own experience. It's a tough one. Well, one of the common threads that I'm noticing, and I have talked to some people uh, similar to me, and it's not so much the involuntariness of the treatment. That was the problem. It was the lack of dignity, the lack of respect, the not being able to have the things that we needed, the not being able to get our needs met and being treated like, you know, just being treated like so less than and so othered in that environment. And if it was an environment of care, I think we would have different viewpoints about involuntary treatment and what that means. In accordance with also respecting autonomy, because one thing you see in the hospital um, is that someone comes in, they're psychotic, they get uh, put on a second opinion, so then they're getting antipsychotic medication. And the majority of the time, and I don't think this is an exaggeration, people do not talk to those folks about what's happening to them and about their experience and about the medications that they're on. And what does this mean? And what do you think about medications? Sometimes people say, oh, well, it doesn't work. Well, it's like, what do you mean it doesn't work? Or they say, oh, yeah, well, this helps. I'm like, well, what does it help for? You know, like, what do you, you know, what are these things mean? So, because for someone to say it doesn't work, it's like, well, what would you need it to work for? So it's just like, boom, you're in the hospital. Here's your meds. Here's your discharge plan. And then you get some paperwork that you can't even read or understand. And this experience is so common among psychiatric patients. That needs to be worked upon. Respect and dignity. Yes, yes. And I think that would change opinions about involuntary treatment. Like if my experience was I went to some place that was like, uh, you know, calming and everybody was nice. And all I heard was, hey, we're trying to help you rather than, 
no, you can't do this or you can't do that, you know, but that is true. And that is how people are treated sometimes. And we need to listen to them. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be involuntarily treated if that was my only, you know, frame of reference. And I also don't have the psychoeducation to understand the risks involved and the losses that are occurring. There are people who have lost their families. There are people who have lost their ability to be parents. There are people who have lost their ability to work. And there are people underneath these uh, psychotic disorders that have great potential. And I, I think we're missing it. Tara Candela, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. All the best luck in your practice. You want to give you a website one more time? Presence of Mind, PNW, like PacificNorthwest.com. Yes, I hope this uh, helps some of our listeners who are maybe experiencing or have a family member who is experiencing something like this. It's always helpful when sometimes we can see ourselves in your struggle that you went through and um, hopefully get help. So thank you so much. You're very welcome and thank you for having me. You've been listening to Prison Pipeline, airing from the studios of KBOO Portland. Listen to this and previous Prison Pipeline programs at kboo.fm slash Prison Pipeline. Like Prison Pipeline on Facebook. Thank you to our engineer and thank you for listening.